how would people feel about entering a very sick child in an intensive care setting into a clinical trial, well, particularly when many of the things that we do don't benefit that child at that time. But actually, I found parents in particular were really open and receptive to being part of it. They saw that actually there was something to be had for the future. And what I often say to parents when I talk to them is around your child today is being cared for on the background of, of a huge amount of research that parents have signed up to before. You know, the reason I know how to ventilate your baby now today is because of what we've learned before from other research studies, from medical studies that this treatment works better. And what we want to do is keep making that better. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode three of the third season of the Not Many Adults podcast, Pioneers for Children's Healthcare and Wellbeing. My name is David Cole, and once again, I'm joined by my wife, Hannah, and we are the co-founders of UK children's charity, Thinking of Oscar. This week, we are joined by Dr. Don Sharkey, and we're going to be discussing innovation, research, and technology within neonatal care. Dr. Sharkey is Clinical Associate Professor of Neonatal Medicine at the University of Nottingham, a neonatal intensivist at Nottingham University Hospital, NHS Trust in the UK. Don is an academic neonatologist with a broad research portfolio aimed at reducing major morbidities in newborn infants. Don's main research focuses in healthcare technology for babies and children, focused on neonatal resuscitation, neonatal monitoring and diagnostics, and also computer vision and machine learning techniques. We also discuss the sometimes difficult conversation of research within child health and neonatal care. We have a truly powerful conversation with Don, and we hope that you take as much from it as we did. Don, hi. Thank you so much for joining us on the Not Many Adults podcast. Hi, David. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for inviting me. No, absolute pleasure. I think, as I was saying beforehand, you're our first conversation around neonatology. So really, really looking forward to uh, uh, kind of delving into some of the things that you have been doing in, in your career. And, and with that, I guess, where we tend to start in, in a lot of our conversations is just talking a little bit about you, if you don't mind, and kind of how you got to, you know, what you're doing today. I guess I've, I've come by an unusual route. Um, I, I kind of left school with uh, minimal qualifications, um, which many people um, don't really realise. And I went straight into an electronics and engineering apprenticeship and was doing that for a few years and, and really got into, into computing and engineering through a variety of companies and then eventually realised that um, my calling was greater than what I was achieving at that time as being a young teenager and set out, went back to do my, um, my A-levels at college before deciding somebody convinced me that I should probably consider medicine because I had the attributes for it. So at the age of 21, I entered into planning that and, and, and managed, was lucky enough to get a place at the University of Nottingham, grew from there. And I guess it was during my paediatrics attachment at the University of Nottingham as an undergraduate. I was lucky enough to be based in Derbyshire Children's Hospital, where at the time there were, and still are, a couple of very inspirational paediatricians who really got me thinking about paediatrics. I never really considered it. I went in, I think, like many students, and had this vision I was going to be maybe an orthopaedic surgeon or something like that, um, without realising what orthopaedic surgery was. And I got into paediatrics and realised it was for me. It covered everything. You thought about the whole family, the child, the kind of setting things up for the child for the future. That's how I really got into paediatrics. And it was really cemented when I did my house officer jobs in adult medicine. And I struggled to 
to treat patients who were doing harm to themselves through their lifestyle choices. They come in, I'd fix them in hospital for a short period, they go home, do the same thing again, usually around smoking or drinking, come back to me and I, I really struggled dealing with those sorts of patients and what I really wanted and what appealed to me about paediatrics was setting children up for the kind of, you know, the lifestyle that they deserved. If we could get things right early in life, then actually that would be them for the rest of their lives. So that's really where it all came from. And particularly in neonatology. So that's how I eventually got into neonatology because of all the, the, the kind of subspecialties in paediatrics, if you get things right in neonatology, actually, you know, the, the twizzle of the ventilator knob in the right direction at the right time really can make a big difference for that child and for the rest of their life. And of course, that child's well-being fulfills the whole family's well-being and, um, and sets them all up for a good life. So that's really how I got into it in the space of two minutes. <laughs> it's a fantastic story. So, so thank you. Thank you for sharing. And I guess since you've found your calling, as it were, and, and you know, are now working in the space. So, you know, some of the things that we're going to talk about are some of the projects that, that you've been working on. And, and I guess now we can see the correlation between kind of a, a passion from a technological perspective and also, you know, um, I guess, as you call it, a, a calling, which I guess in some respects we, we feel is the same way, kind of Oscar's given us that calling to try and do what we're doing from, from a charitable perspective. But, but if you could kind of talk to us a little bit about the work that you're now doing in the role that you are and bringing those kind of two elements together. I've always been fascinated um, in intensive care. So I, I really enjoyed my time both in neonatal intensive care and paediatric intensive care. And I think it was the technology side of things that really excited me. I reached a, a fork in, in my career path where I had to decide one of the intensive care specialties. And I like the ability to follow patients up and see them long term, which you get in neonatology, you know, and to see, I guess, the outcome of, of the care that you've delivered. So um, that, that was the area I embarked on and then um, eventually started to forge a, a, an academic career and again, doing most of my research in Nottingham, I was lucky enough to work with a number of different groups from fundamental scientists through to engineers and I was quite an early year registrar, so that's kind of the middle grade trainee in paediatrics and um, was, was doing my PhD and just came across a lecture once from a, a colleague now who, who was an engineer who came over to our department to do a seminar. And um, he just happened to mention, and his kind of summing up uh, phrase, he mentioned that they developed um, a system where you could monitor the heart rate and temperature of miners underground through wearing their, their safety hat. So miners underground are exposed to extremes of stress. And the deeper they go, um, the more, more they're exposed to these stresses. So they needed some way of monitoring these. So I guess this was, I mean, this was probably more than 15 years ago now. And th th what they really wanted to do was look at wearable technology for these miners. And it got me thinking at the time in 2005, I think this was, there was a real problem around neonatal resuscitation and how we monitor babies in the delivery room. No one really knew the best way to do it. And we were trying all sorts of different things. People were putting on also, scimitars that were designed for adults or ECG machines that were designed for adults. But they, they would never, you know, the, the, the problems came, you know, you, you put an ECG on a baby and it, it would fall off because the baby's got wet skin. So it was never designed for wet skin or it would strip the skin of a very premature baby. The pulse oximeters, they didn't respond to, to good perfusion. Babies are always blue when they're born, so their saturations are always low. So they're not really optimized for that transition period. And I just, it just got me thinking, actually, if we could monitor the heart rate using something that was perhaps built into a cap 
because we always put caps on our very small babies just to maintain their temperature. And then we just had had a small conversation after the seminar with my engineering colleague, colleague uh, Professor Crow, and it was there that we really kind of kicked off my research interest in, in technologies. And we got together with a group of us, with engineers and with the research nurse I was working with at the time, and we put in an application to Action Medical Research, who were one of the kind of main charitable funders of, of paediatric research at the time. And we were lucky enough they funded us, and that kind of kicked off quite a journey, in fact, because we then went on and subsequently developed a, and commercialised a product for newborn resuscitation. It's created a company on the back of it that's had you know, significant investment, millions of pounds, millions of pounds of research funding. And, and it's growing further. And I guess that was really the very first point in which I, I got involved in technologies. And through that, just sitting and listening to colleagues who were really working at the fundamental science level, discovering new things, be it a new polymer, a new way of designing or developing something, or a new engineering technique, and just and being able to translate what they were discovering into something that might actually work in the clinic. And for me, that, that's been an area of immense interest and, and somewhere I've specialised. There are lots of people who obviously focus on, on bigger populations in adults, but very few who look at it in neonatology. And so it's an area that I've, I've kind of grown a reputation for and I've been very excited about. And I've got many different projects running now, all, all in parallel. And at times I've felt overwhelmed. I've been at capacity and, and felt this desire to try and get all of these technologies into neonatology and, and wish there were more people coming through. So one of my other passions around technologies is, is kind of growing future leaders in this, in this domain as well. So I have a, a number of students, PhD students in particular, across a variety of different specialties, which I think is unusual for a, a, an academic clinician where, you know, I, I certainly in the last year I've had two PhD students, one from computer science, one from engineering who have graduated with their PhDs. I've had two clinical fellows who, who have both graduated with their PhDs in technology-related aspects, um, again, in the last year. So all of these things is about growing these people, getting people interested in them and seeing that actually just because we adopt all of these things from adult technologies, it doesn't mean that they necessarily give us the right information or work in the right way and that actually we need to, to work with those fundamental scientists to to develop things that are specific for, for children and particularly for babies. What you've just landed on is a question that's been bubbling in my mind for a few minutes now. I was interested in your take on, we called the podcast, not uh, not just many adults, not many adults, in fact, I've got it wrong, classic. And it's not limited to the devices, but this idea of invention versus adaptation and that so many solutions that exist in um, paediatrics, including neonates, have been derived from a solution from healthcare for adults and so what's your point of view of adaptation versus invention when when is it the right time to invent and when is it better to adapt i guess as pediatricians it's one of the, th the first things that we're all taught as soon as we embark on a career in pediatrics is that children aren't small adults even adolescents are not necessarily small adults they have different things that um, need to be addressed differently and I think as you go down the ages, it becomes more apparent. And there are certainly technologies that can be adapted from adults. And I guess things around, you know, imaging is probably a good example, is that um, imaging modalities, you can adapt usually the software quite straightforwardly to, to accommodate with that. And I guess when it comes to other technologies, 
you need to start to think about the disease processes that are slightly different in children. And it's well described things like there's particular diseases in children that, that relate to orphan diseases that they're often called, where they're, they're extremely rare. They occur usually from birth or usually within the first months of life. And they're very rare. And, and actually, sadly, most children who have these, the more severe end of these, they don't survive. And, and partly that is because I think previously people have not invested in trying to come up with solutions or treatments or management plans for those particular children because they're such a small population. And I think it was probably about 10 or 15 years ago, certainly in the EU, there was a big switch to trying to address this. I think that really kicked off in pharmaceuticals to begin with where they realised you just couldn't just chop and change something to suit these particular children. And I think that's really where it's grown, that people have recognised that those children need specific treatments and need investment in it. But at the end of the day, people are they're a very small population and there isn't a huge amount of, I guess, of shareholder money to be made. And so we've had to come up with novel ways of tempting people in to study these particular groups. And I think we're starting to see some of that now migrating to what we've seen in innovation, I think, as you called it, in technologies for children and particularly for babies, realising that a 100 kilo adult in their 60s who's got heart disease is very different to a 500 gram baby who's just been born, who's got a respiratory problem that is unique to the newborn, who's got the risk of a brain injury that's unique to the newborn. All of those things are things that we need to tackle differently. And I think that's where I've been coming at things from, is, is trying to come out more, more from the you know, inventing it specifically for that population rather than adapting it. Now, some of the technologies will be, the kind of platform will be an adaption, but it will be, you know, just making some subtle changes to the design will make it more suitable for that population. And I think often that's where people have been, they've fallen in that territory because it's much easier to do that. But now we're seeing more and more of a push for devices in particular to be designed for children and particularly for babies that, that actually there's more investment in those. And I think that's been recognised by funders. Again, we've seen it in, in the UK in particular and even across in, in the States, probably 10, at least 10 years ago, they, they realised that there were real issues here and they set up multiple institutions that had these paediatric medical device expertise so that they could fast track and develop new technologies for children, um, specifically looking at, you know, how do we do clinical trials using these new devices and development for children? I think there was a report five or six years ago that looked at 20, maybe 25 high risk medical devices that were licensed for use in children and babies. And when they look back at the, the regulatory aspects of those I think uh, 85% of them had had no clinical trials in children at all. So they were designed for adults and tested in adults, but they developed and they got a license for use in children. And that was without knowing that they had any any use in children or there were other problems. And I think a um, good example is probably the ECG. We, we all got to, um, to using ECG in the delivery room and it's very good. But as we've got more used to using ECG in the delivery room, we find that it does have some limitations. There are children who have a slow heart rate, which is babies who have a slow heart rate of 60, but it may be that the ECG, you know, shows the rate of 60, um, but there's no adequate heart rate output. So it's not, the heart isn't beating well enough. So you can be misled by that. And the same was true of pulse oximeters. So we just adopted pulse oximeters from adults, but actually in the first few minutes of life, they've been shown to be inaccurate. And that's because the, the, the perfusion issues, they just don't pick up the signal well enough. 
So there are areas where we just need to be careful that you just can't adopt these things. And that's why I've tried to focus on coming at the angle from the innovation rather than pure adaption. You make a fascinating point. I have to pick up on it because I've literally just been reading about kind of orphan drugs and orphan conditions. I need to do a bit more research into it. But actually, you know, a lot of what we talk about and I have conversations all the time at various different levels around, you know, the need for more investment, more concentration around paediatric care, neonatal care, but, you know, in that spectrum. But then the, the negative aspect of it is that actually the return on investment is not necessarily there. The, the pool of you know, patients, the size is not relative to the, the amount of investment that we need to go into it to make a difference. But actually, there's some studies being done, especially around orphan drugs, that a lot of or a vast proportion, a much larger proportion than you would anticipate of profits that are made by big pharma have come from orphan, very small, very kind of challenging, I guess, therapeutics that have needed to happen for certain cases. And I think there's the work there or, or some thoughts that maybe need to go into looking at that and trying to translate that into, you know, the potential for paediatric care as well. And to try and, you know, rebuff the criticism or the thought process that, you know, it's just not, it's just not worth investing in. Slight tangent, sorry, but I've literally just been reading about that this morning. So it was, a, it was in my mind, as it were. Coming back to some of the areas that, that you're working in, and you talked about the company that you've formed, which is SurePulse Medical, um, using the CAP. And I guess you know people can find in, information on that and, and the opportunity for that. And we'll, we'll put a link on that, but on the, on the web, as it were. But you're also doing quite a lot around neonatal transportation and trying to, I guess, move babies from the delivery ward to intensive care or wherever it might be. But talk to us a little bit about that, because you, you've spent quite a lot of time looking at that, at that area. I guess for uh, over 20 years, many parts of the world, particularly in, in America and Australia, they had this centralised uh, system where the highest risk infants would go to these big centres, in, in, often in big cities, because it, it, would, um, it would improve the outcomes for these children. But in order to do that, obviously, in a, in, a, in a geographical area, you have many births occurring all over. And so you need to be able to move the babies into those centres. And it was back in 2003, the UK decided to go for centralisation of intensive care for newborns. And so they set up probably in the late 2000s, a number of transport teams, dedicated transport teams for newborns that would move babies from areas where they were born, I guess, in the wrong place into these intensive care centres. So in the UK, we have about 190 maternity birthing centres and about 50 to 60, it, it fluctuates a little bit, of, of neonatal intensive care centres. But actually, you know, more than half of the births occur outside of an intensive care centre. And if your baby is extremely preterm or is born with a congenital anomaly or with birth-related problems, then they need to go to these intensive care centres. And so geographically, the UK is very small and most centres are within one to two hours of, of a major intensive care centre. But it still means moving the baby. And actually, what we do in the back of the ambulance is we take, in effect, a complete intensive care cot space, with a often with a dedicated nurse, dedicated, trained professional. And that's usually in the form of a doctor or an advanced nurse practitioner who goes out to retrieve the child from their birthing hospital and bring them into an intensive care centre. Now, my area of interest is... That, having ridden in the back of many ambulances with many sick babies is, is actually watching them bounce around in the back of an ambulance in an incubator isn't a nice thing to observe. It's good for them um, in that it will improve their, their mortality. That if by going to this centre, they're a little more likely to survive. 
but actually, although we've seen improvements in mortality, it's been less impressive with other important uh, outcomes such as um, brain injury in these children. And I guess that's what got me interested, you know, is the environment that they're being transported in, is it optimal or could we improve that to improve their outcomes? And then there's, there's been a number of studies, including some recent UK data um, that was really powerful that showed babies who were transported in this way were at greater risk of having a severe brain injury. So that more of them would survive, but more of them would survive with severe brain injury. And although it's still a, a very rare event, it's an important event for that child and that family. And so my focus has been trying to, to tackle that and see if there are ways that we can understand what, what the mechanisms are and what we can then do to address it, particularly from a, a technological approach. So I've been working with some small transport companies. I lead as the research lead for the UK Neonatal Transport Group, which are all 15 of the neonatal transport teams across the UK. We, we, we collect data and, and we plan about how we can improve these transport pathways. And I've had a number of research uh, fellows who have helped study this, thanks to funding from the likes of the NIHR in particular, working with my engineering colleagues, we've been able to, to explore it more with a view to adapting the, the transport system that we use to make it safer. So lots of people don't know, but it's quite a common thing for babies to move around the country, so much so that there are about 16,000 newborn transfers by ambulance between hospitals every year in the UK. So they're huge numbers and often for many, many miles. So families, I think about 40% of them that are transferred, it's over a, over 100 kilometres of return journey to and from their house. So so they're big distances that these babies are going and that there's a period that, that does expose them to these additional environmental stresses. Now, unfortunately, the risk of having a severe brain bleed in these very preterm infants is often in the first day or two of life, and that is the time that you transfer them. So they're born in the wrong centre, they need to go to the centre. So, so we're moving them at a time that's the greatest risk. And so we've been studying the mechanisms there and some of the stresses that they're exposed to. And just to give you an example, when we've measured it, the kind of head exposure that a newborn's head is exposed to in terms of its vibration is far above what is deemed legal, uh, a legal safe limit of vibration for a normal adult in their day-to-day -day work. So if you're a truck driver, you, you're expected to fall below a certain threshold of vibration. If you don't, by law, there are laws that protect you that say your employer must do something about it to reduce that exposure because you're more likely to get musculoskeletal problems, backache, headaches, be off work chronically sick. But there's no such levels in, in, in terms of transporting babies. So we've looked at all that and we've defined what the levels of vibration that these babies are exposed to. And it's often two or three times what an adult would be allowed to be exposed to. And so we've been trying to tackle that from an engineering perspective and trying to reduce the amount of exposure that they have, both from noise, from vibration, temperature fluctuations, and really studying that. We've done that from a technological perspective, but also we've used... Um, you know, UK-wide data to explore, you know, where are the problems in, in, in these patients in terms of their, their movement? Can we get more babies moved in utero so the mum is moved rather than before she's born, before the baby's born, rather than afterwards? Because that's a safe environment. That's the ultimate transport incubator in effect. But there are challenges there from my um, midwifery and obstetric colleagues that need to be addressed. And it was uh, probably five years ago nearly, Jeremy Hunt as the health secretary at the time, threw down the gauntlet for us to reduce brain injury in these babies by 50% by the year 2025. So we're only three and a bit years away from that. 
and that's a huge undertaking and and, and that's going to be that's going to require multiple ways of tackling it both from moving more babies in utero to tackling the postnatal environment making that safer and you know we've been looking at safety so that babies do have accidents in ambulances when they're being transported there's there's well documented cases there um, and the restraints we use the, the only requirement is that after an accident if an ambulance were determined to its side that the baby remains in the same position it was at the start of the accident and, and, and at the end and the restraints are very good at doing that they can hold the baby in place but sadly many of the babies when we've modeled it would probably die from their restraining injuries and so we need to think differently and it's not just a case of putting a seatbelt on a baby or strapping a baby in with with a harness you need to think about how you access it and so we've been working with you know around human factors with engineers trying to develop those material scientists what are the best mattress configurations that you can come up with you know, thankfully when we went to the NHR you know it takes more than a million pounds to raise a child with cerebral palsy so 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 our argument at the end of our presentation was for the first you know we wanted a million pounds to try and start this research and for the first child's brain it saves from a severe brain injury it will have paid for itself it's that easy and I think they were switched on to that. And um, so Dame Sally Davis, who was the previous chief medical officer, she made a point of it in her 2012 um, report. We've got to tackle the, the, the issues around prematurity, around brain injury, because these are lifelong. The child gets a brain injury, it's with them for life. And if that child lives for 50 to 100 years, that's a, a lot of healthcare, a lot of resource that goes into that child. Um, so that, that's really how I got into that. And we're pushing forward on that. And hopefully in the next maybe five years or so, we'll have something that will make this a much safer system for these babies. Is there anything that you can kind of discuss now in terms of some of the advancements that you're seeing, you know, some of the things that are most exciting you? I guess the, the things we've been looking at really are reducing vibration. What we needed to do was to, to look at ways we could perhaps modify current systems rather than producing a completely new system, partly because all of these systems, they have a, typically a 10-year life and we couldn't foresee everybody just overnight replacing their system so how can we adapt what um, people are using at the moment and just put in some new um, components so we've been exploring that and we found some really some really nice useful data from that that hopefully we can we can roll out we've been looking at how we might reduce the noise so there are there are quite a number of times when in the back of an ambulance the noise is so loud it exceeds the noise that you probably get with a chainsaw going off next to your ear and if you're a highly fragile baby, you know, on multiple blood pressure, multiple ventilatory support, having that noise going off next to your ear for however long your journey is isn't a good thing. And we know it causes fluctuations in, in brain blood flow. So we've explored some ways about how we can reduce the noise exposure that they have. And, you know, it's not as easy as thinking you can just miniaturize, you know, some earmuffs. People have tried that and they don't work. So we've been coming up with some, some nice new ways of trying to, to do that again, with our engineering colleagues. But as you might expect, there's, there's ideas around IP and things in there that I, I just need to be careful about talking too much about. No, of course, of course. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, the, the project sounds like it could be, uh, as you say, you know, that the numbers speak for themselves if you can if you can save one patient. So it's, a, it's an amazing project. And, you know, we've, we've seen a few things where others are looking to do something similar. Um, so, you know, we wish you every, every, every luck with that. Absolutely. Just a um, couple of other things that, that I think would be really interesting to talk about. One is that I guess you you started your career in Nottingham. I'm assuming that, and you've stayed there. I'm assuming that that has been all encapsulating opportunity for you. But one of the interesting things happening in Nottingham, I think, is this Centre for Health Technologies. 
which you mentioned to me when, when we first started having a discussion. And I've, again, through our discussions and, and doing some research, there seems to be some really interesting things going on there. Is there anything that you can talk to us about just in terms of the, the centre, but also, you know, some of the uh, projects that, that you've seen there as well? Yeah, I guess, I guess it kind of went back to um, to what I mentioned earlier about this, the interface between getting fundamental science engineering people to talk to the clinical people to say, you know, what are the problems you've got and and you know are there any of the solutions that we have that can can address that and that that was a real issue for us because i was working closely with engineers and computer scientists with fundamental scientists about six years ago uh, with with some engineering colleagues we decided that we would um, put in a, a case to the university that actually we should create something that pulls us all together stops us working in our silos and i think that's the only way you can you can forge forward now I think with research and the university was very supportive they they were excellent they saw the strengths they saw the importance of healthcare technologies it's a growing area that the future of medicine where where things were going and so we we got together as a group and we formed the the center for healthcare technologies one of the unique things is it's a it's a nice partnership between both the university and one of the largest trusts in the UK the Nottingham University Hospitals and it's quite nice because both of them, what we call our, where our, our engineering and our science base is on the university, is literally joined by a bridge that crosses over one of the ring roads that goes through Nottingham to the hospital. So we have, we we are in such close proximity, but it really just pulled us together, made us think. And um, I was one of the founding clinicians who helped launch that, and we've got it going still. And we, the aim is that, as I say, it pulls all of those interested parties together. We have things, we organise things like speed dating. So we get um, scientists, engineers, you know, we go out for a bite to eat and a, a beer maybe, and we sit down with clinicians from a particular specialty and we just speed date for five minutes. You, you then grab your beer, you move along to the next person, you just chat about what they're doing. And we've had a number of really great and, and fruitful collaborations grow from that that's allowed us just to develop new ideas you know, how we could take what, what somebody in engineering had developed around, you know, a new MRI technique, for example, and how we can apply it in the clinic. And it's allowed us to get the funding in to prove that the concept works to then go on to clinical trials. And that's how many of my um, collaborations have grown. And we've done that. And, and what we're doing now is we're working on our external partners. So bringing in commercial industry partners, bringing in other institutions in order that we can try and, and, and work together. It's still in its early years, but actually it's grown quite nicely and, um, and we've had some really great successes from it. And I, I've enjoyed being part of it. I met a colleague there recently, well, two or three years ago, who's created some really nice new polymers that are, are materials that you can coat pretty much any plastic or silicon with. And for my population, where infections in neonates cause huge morbidity, huge mortality, I just thought, well, we've got to take these and, and put them onto some of our medical devices. And, you know, we've got some, some nice funding to get that going, some PhD students. And again, we're starting to explore that. So he was focused on adults. And clearly that's a big population. But for me, it was about getting over to him, actually. You know, it, it might cause you know, a big problem in, in adults, say, from you know, having urine infections on from a catheter. But in babies, it causes death and lifelong disability if they get an infection. So that's an area that we really need to target. And when we talk, in, we talk about quality of life, quality adjusted years, depending on how you measure these things. 
actually, when you start to talk about neonates and, and children, it's an easy story to, to sell. Um, although we are a small population we're dealing with, those quality of life years are, are there to be had. So that, that's really where it all came from. And it's an exciting thing. We don't just look at engineering and, and you know, chemistry. We don't just look at biology, new imaging techniques. But I, I'm working with computer scientists as well. And we've been developing a number of AI approaches, which have been, you know, have been really successful and, and things that we hopefully we can, we can keep pushing forward for. And moving on from that, what's your experience of kind of the practical, pragmatic experience to implementing some of the ideas that you've been working on over the, the years? And from my background, where I was coming from was so much of what you're involved with now has got data involved with it. So even if you're talking about a device, often you'll be collecting data about a very small baby in order to make decisions sooner or improve the decision making process for example but but with that becomes challenges of like where the data sits and integrating with hospital systems but actually the question's wider than that because you've made me think about other areas to consider whether it's the IP considerations that you mentioned or uh, whether it was to do with risk and the role of clinical trials but how do you go for because for me it just feels like it could be very difficult to have a brilliant idea and then but then be able to turn that into something that hospital organizations are happy to have implemented i think in, in my field in particular the two barriers i always i always felt that would be the thing that w- would hold our research back the first was around technology adoption and how you move through through how you move the technology through its its adoptive stages and for me that's always been the major hindrance so you often, at the early stages, you come up with a great idea. You know, you've got a new sensor or a new, uh, using that, that example I had before, a new um, polymer that you can you can code to prevent code device to prevent infection. You come up with that, and then it's then getting it into those early clinical trials. And there's always a dip. You know, you get your data, you have to wait. You put in your application for your funding, you get bounced the first time. You put it in again. So there's, a, there's an inherent lag of you know 18 months. So it really slows you down as a researcher. It slows down this adoption to getting it to the patients that really need it. You know, you then get your next round of funding and then prove in a preclinical or clinical, small clinical trial that it works. And then you have to wait and put that data in for the next application. So, you know, you then, you know, to do the big trial and and then eventually, you know, you get the funding for that. And then there's a, a lag getting that one finished and getting the data out and people then adopting it, going through all the regulatory aspects. So that still is and, and always will be, I think, a, a major hindrance. I think lots of the funders now are switched on to that and they're, they're now trying to fund bigger, more bold programs rather than individual sh- short projects that, that will stop and start in that way. They want to try and fund a really brilliant idea all the way through. The other one that I thought might be a hindrance was that, I guess, kind of what you alluded to was around how would people feel about entering a very sick child in an intensive care setting into a clinical trial, well, particularly when many of the things that we do don't benefit that child at that time. But actually, I found parents in particular were really open and receptive to being part of it. They saw that actually there was something to be had for the future. And, um, and what I often say to parents when I talk to them is around your child today is being cared for on the background of, of a huge amount of research that parents have signed up to before. You know, the reason I know how to ventilate your baby now today is because of what we've learned before from other research studies. 
from you know medical studies that this treatment works better and what we want to do is keep making that better and I thought that might be a hindrance but actually it's surprising how many parents even at the time of, of, of extreme worry anxiety for them and when their baby's at their sickest they will they will they will agree to participate in the research because they can see the benefits for that and I guess on the back of that it's been reflected in how hospitals and how ethics bodies for example they they see this research and they I think are more open to that now. They realise that some of this really is at a time when children are, are, can be at the most vulnerable. And sadly, I've had children who've been in my in my medical device studies that haven't survived um, because of the nature I work in intensive care. And it's not it's not related to the study they were doing. They would they they would die of, of other causes. And you know, it's a horrendous privilege for a clinician researcher. To be able to to say you know to with that family to sit down and say you know what we've learned from this has been amazing it's been a real privilege to have you you know you're part of that and I'm, you know it's, it's extremely sad that their child has died and I, I don't know what they feel when they when they talk about that to, to lose a child but actually a number of families have said to me that they feel as though they've contributed in some way that they although they lost their child that it's had in some way it will have a benefit for other children. And I think that's one of the things that drives us all on as clinicians, particularly in those in those settings where not every child does survive. And actually, I think you know um, many of the systems we have now around ethics and the hospitals are, are geared up for. They recognise that's a really tricky environment to go in, and um, and you know they've been very supportive of us now. That there is a lack of joined up, you know, collecting data, for example, just routine data has been very tricky previously. The number of hoops you have to jump through in order to collect that, in order to learn about your patients and, and study things in, in a, you know, an offline way, has been very difficult. But again, they're, they're becoming more open to that. And I think you know there are steps going forward about um, making everybody's data more available in an anonymized way that you can pull together and we can look at that. And we've done lots of research looking at, at those big databases as well and, and utilizing those. And I guess part of that's built into some of the, the, the machine learning, the artificial intelligence work that we've, we've been developing. Don, thank you. We could talk to you for hours. I think a lot of what you're doing is really, really inspirational. So it's been you know, fantastic learning more about it. One of the things I will certainly take from the conversation, not least what you just discussed, and I think that's you know, really, I guess, pertinent to a lot of things that we, we just try to do as well, but also the way that you're working, you know, between yourselves and, and uh, the university. Anecdotally, I kind of use a, an example of, and one that actually has spurred us on quite a lot of Atlanta Children's Hospital and Georgia Tech coming together and doing very similar things. And uh, a friend of ours and a friend of the Not Many Lots podcast, Sherry Ferrugia, was, you know, the, the kind of catalyst for that. And I'm, I'm glad to say that we have, you know, I guess a similar instance in the UK that we can discuss as well. The final question, though, uh, which we kind of ask all of our, our guests is, um, if you could change anything within paediatric healthcare, what, what would it be? There are lots of things. I think that I, I've talked about lots of positives that have happened over, certainly over the 15 years I've been, I've been studying device technology uh, development in, in this field. I think for me, it really would be not just from a funding perspective, from the traditional funders in the UK, but from industry as well would be to recognise, although there, there may not be huge amounts of money to be earned from s- developing these things, actually the quality of life and the, the buying in to you know a, ch- a child's future is really important. 
you know Paul Dimitri, who's head of the, the Children's and Young People's um, MedTech that I'm part of. We have this saying about, you know, the children may be a small part of the population, but they're all the future. And that's true. And if we can improve the lives of children by rapidly developing new ideas and, and translating them into you know, new things that will improve their health, their well-being and, and ultimately their life chances, then actually that's a good thing. And I, I think the funders in the UK, certainly from the government side of things, have recognised that now. What I'd really like to do is to see, there are there are good examples out there, I'm, I'm, I'm not applying this to everybody, but for the big pharma, the big medical device companies, to start to invest more in them, realising that although it's a small population, there may not be much money to have, but actually there are big gains to be had. It's important, I think, you know, that we can help extend lives and keep them, them well, but I see huge amounts of money going into extending somebody's life by four months, you know, at the end of their life from a cancer treatment but very little going into into preventing a brain injury in a baby. And I think that's perhaps where we need to think differently. And as it's not a huge population, it doesn't require huge amounts of, of investment, but it just needs that right investment with the right teams to really accelerate it. Um, and every day that that's held back, you know, there's another child who, who sadly will have a brain injury for, for the next 50 to 100 years of their life. Don, thank you so much. It's been a real privilege talking to you and a, a delight to hear about all the work that you're doing. Good luck with it all. Thank you, David. Thank you so much to Dr. Sharkey for joining us on the Not Many Adults podcast. And I'm sure that you will agree, a pretty powerful conversation that we had. And it's interesting because we're seeing a lot of innovation within neonatal care at this point in time, which is, I think, you know, wonderful to see. Next week, we will be joined by paediatric neurosurgeon, Dr. J. J. O'Moen who is going to be coming and talking to us about empathy and the importance of having that connection with not only the patient, but also those around them when looking after a child in hospital. We really hope that you can join us then. Please do subscribe to the podcast. And if you're enjoying it, please do leave us a review as well. We hope you'll join us again next week. Mm-hmm.